Venice. And there you can visit the mausoleum today. And many have heard about the exquisite artwork in the mausoleum. It's become famous over the ages. And people have made pilgrimages to this mausoleum, to Gala Placidia. When you open the door and you enter into the inner sanctums of the mausoleum, you find that something is very strange because there's an inky blackness. And as you go in and you try to make out what is actually in the mausoleum and what everyone's raving on so much about, you find that, well, it's a bit of a disappointment. Unless you've had a good feed of carrots, you're a cat or a rabbit. She can't see anything. And the impatient will always leave underwhelmed and disappointed. Because it's not until you stand there and someone happens to drop a coin into the small little metal donation box just on the inside of the door that for a split few seconds... The spotlights come on, and when they do, they illuminate the most fantastic, unbelievable, extraordinary mosaics anywhere on the earth. Millions upon millions of tiny little tiles that have actually not been laid flat, but slightly angular, so that when the light hits them, they actually shine through the tiles, and it gives the appearance of a 3D picture. 3D picture of Jesus as a shepherd. Some of the disciples and the apostles. Beautiful. And then the lights go out. They don't go on again until someone drops another coin into the box. Like the tourists of of the mausoleum of Gala Placidia, who leave disappointed, many have entered into the Christian faith expecting big things because they have a, a preconceived or they've been told about a picture of God and their expectations are high. And when he doesn't deliver, they leave underwhelmed disenfranchised, disappointed. We've heard the stories. We've, oh, what about this great God? We've, where's the goodies? Where's all this stuff that people have been talking about? Where's that? If they don't gain a true and accurate picture of God, if they don't stay long enough to see the light go on that will illuminate a God who's supposedly all generous, all loving, uh, um, um, kind, and, and, and where's all that stuff? But if they don't gain the true picture because they don't stay long enough for the light to go on to illuminate an accurate picture of God, they leave, thinking that they've actually witnessed the true picture. Ever since Eden, we've been controlled by fear. We were scared, pretty much, of just about everything in this place. Let me illustrate. Probably the, the, the one thing that we're scared about most is death. But 
our fear of where we live governs pretty much how we control our environment and our lives. Fear and control determine the way in which behave, we behave and how we relate to our environments. If we, uh, if we haven't got a whole lot of money, we work harder and we take a second job, we get more money. If we're worried about our health, some of us, we start to look at diets. Or we start to look at exercise. Clearly, I haven't started. If we start and worry about a disintegration of our relationships, then some may turn to the computer screen behind the door late at night. Or perhaps drugs, alcohol. You see, the way we view our world, we have a certain element of fear connected to how we live in our environments. And in order to alleviate that fear, we try as much as we can to gain control over it. And we're all just a little bit different, but we're pretty much all the same. And when it comes to God, the ancients <clears throat> had a posture. They had a mental picture of what they thought that God looked like. And we're going to have a brief look very quickly this morning at some of the postures that people live with when it comes to a picture of God. Life under God, life over God, life from God, life for God, and life with God. And life under God... Life under God is a life how the ancients used to see God. They used to see God as that that, that maintained control over their environment. Not only were they worried about the natural the natural environment, but they also were worried about the gods because the gods controlled the natural environment. So in order to control the gods, they came up with these elaborate rituals and systems and sacrificial rites and practices and they sought control over God because they believed that if they were good, if they sacrificed the right way, if they adhered to the rituals to the, meticulously down to the T, that they could gain favor from the gods. So they tried to exert power and control over God. That was their picture of God because the gods were capricious and they needed appeasing. And if they could be successful in appeasing the gods, then they could gain control over God who controlled the natural environment. Because the natural environment wasn't controlled so much by natural law, but by the will of the gods. And they adopted the posture of living life under God. And in Christianity, many adopt this same principle. This same picture, they have a picture of God where they assume that God is to be followed through strict obedience. Hear me out. I'm not downplaying obedience to God, but hear me out. And that is the main focus. If you cut the core of the picture of God 
as life under God, right at its core, you'll find obedience, ritual, sacrifice. And today, we find that there are many that live according to the posture, life under God. Just prior to 9-11, there was a fatwa, that's not a big person, that's an Islamic legal pronouncement, to the American forces that were in the Arabian Peninsula. You're on holy land, get out. And when the American forces refused to move, the Islamic world, because these had not adhered to the strict obedience to where their picture of what God looks like and how he operates, then we'll wage war on you, you infidels. And you and I know what happened there September 11. And we've been living under the terror of terrorist attack ever since. Jesus says, walking down the street, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. He says, hey, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? Causing him to be born blind. Jesus had the same issue with the same posture. People of his time believed that we must adhere to the rituals and the sacrifice and strict obedience or else we're in trouble. Life over God. Oh, sorry, life under God. And they ask him, so who sinned? His parents or this guy that he's blind? And Jesus says, <laughs> he dismantles it. And he says, you've got it all wrong. This whole life under God posture that you so vehemently adhere to is incorrect when it comes to a picture of God. He goes on in Matthew 23, 23, he says, <laughs> you religious leaders, you're hopeless. You tithe, you mint, dill and the coming. Or in this particular version, he says, you keep meticulous account of books, tithing on every cent that you get, but on the meat of God's law, things like fairness and compassion and commitment, the absolute basics, nitpicking over commas and semicolons. He says, that's not an accurate picture of God. You think that when you look good on the outside, through your observance, your strict observance of the rules and rituals and regulations and the sacrificial system, that you have a picture of God. And Jesus says, mm-mm, you're far from it. And the Old Testament reminds these people make a big show of saying the right thing, but their hearts aren't in it because they act like they're worshipping me, but they don't mean it. I'm going to step in and shock them, awake, astonish them, stand them on their ears. The wise ones who had it all figured out will be exposed as fools. The smart people who thought they knew everything will turn out to be nothing. At the core of this posture, life under God, it's not that we want God himself. We just want his supernatural benefits. And when they're not delivered in the way in which we thought and planned, then we walk away from God. But you know what? We don't actually walk away from God. 
We walk away, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. We walk away from a bad picture of God. Which brings us to life over God. There's supposed to be little triangles there that that guy's sitting on. He's not um, actually levitating, but the triangles didn't come through on the PowerPoint for some reason. I don't know why. But life over God, the next posture. Life over God. What's life over God? Life over God. Remember the song Imagine by John Lennon? Came out, what, about 1980? You know the words? Oh, how I wish. We lived in a world where there was no what? Two things. Nation and religion. Because John Lennon then goes on to say this. If we didn't have nations and religions, we'd have nothing then to kill or die for. And the world would live in what? huge hit for John Lennon life over God was the posture if only we could get rid of all religions if only we could get rid of all country boundaries then we could live at peace because there'd be nothing to, to kill and nothing to die for and we'd live at peace well I don't know about that that's an interesting posture. But did you know that in the anniversary of his death in 19, sorry, in 2010, a huge multitude of people joined together in Washington to sing his songs, to praise John Lennon, and to call for world peace. At the same time, in Los Angeles, there was the huge meeting of the world's atheists. It was a huge symposium. Now, there's two sorts of atheists. There's what's called the new atheists, and they are the ones that believe that Christianity should be squashed, it should be eradicated, should be gotten rid of, because there's no God, God's dead. And then there's the accommodationalists. And there the atheists say, well, Christianity can survive on its own over here, and we can do our thing over here, and may the best man win. It's interesting at their symposium, the new atheists and the accommodationalists didn't get on too well. In fact, the whole symposium disintegrated into a punch-up between the two because they couldn't agree. Which begs the question, with the absence of God, can there ever really be an environment of peace? When you think about the Hitler regime, when you think about Mao, when you think about Stalin, when you think about the Khmer Rouge, all these regimes that were juxtaposed to Christianity and anything to do with Christianity. And yet they have become known in our modern history as those regimes that are responsible for some of the greatest heartache throughout all of history. Between 1949 and 1974, Chairman Mao, it's estimated, put around about 30 to 40 million Christians to the sword. Life over God. Can there actually be world peace? Life over God? 
Newton in 1666 saw an apple fall. Thought, ah, that's interesting. I'll call that gravity. And it became known as the birth of the age of enlightenment. And in the birth of the age of enlightenment, scientists began to look at the world as a machine, governed by principles and laws. And all we had to do was to control the earth in which we live because we were still governed by fear. But to control the earth, it wasn't through sacrifice like life under God. Now we could control. All we had to do was simply find out how the place ticked. It was a machine that God put together. Then he stepped away to leave us to it. And he's given us the laws and the principles to work out so we can control it. So we can fix this place through human scientific thought and then religious circles the posture was life over God all we need to do is find the Bible find the principles that underpin the Bible and we have it made we can sort this out ourselves if we just find the laws and the principles that govern how this whole place looks and how it works we got it made. We can control it. God is just the absent watchmaker. He's put the watch together and then he stepped back and just let it go. And all we have to do is make sure the thing's wound. This gave birth to the posture life over God. And at its core, if you split the apple and look at the core, you'll find one thing in its core, and that is... Laws and principles that will enable us to have control over our fears. And those that adhere to the posture, life over God, will eventually come to the realisation, as scientific thought has as well, they just don't like to admit it too often, that we can't control our fears through the adherence of principles and laws, as even found in Scripture. And when we can't, those that are living under the posture of life over God, they become disenfranchised, underwhelmed with their picture of God, and they leave. They leave God. Oh, no, they don't. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. They leave a bad picture of God. You're having your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think by them you'll find, I don't know what the go is with uh, your computer compared to mine, but anyway, more or less this text says, oh, you search the Scriptures diligently because by them you believe that you'll find me through them. And Jesus goes on and says, far from it. And you've heard perhaps preachers say the Bible, well, the Bible is a set of instructions Bible set of instructions before leaving earth. Basic instructions before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E. That's the posture life over God. All we need to do is work out, we've got the manual, who needs the mechanic? Numbers 20. Moses, remember? You know why Moses didn't go into the promised land? Remember? Why? Because he hit the rock, right? Well, what was wrong with that? He hit the rock first time. Water came out. 
Remember all the children of Israel, they're on their way from Egypt to the promised land for those that don't know the story. And they're wandering through the desert, it's really hot like today. And they say, mate, we're thirsty. And, and, and Moses says, well, Lord, what do you want me to do? And, and the Lord says, well, hit the rock. And water coming out of the rock. So he hits the rock, water comes out of the rock. Second time it happens, God's, uh, Moses says, hey, what do I do? And the Lord says, speak to the rock. And the water coming out of the rock. Moses attacks the rock twice with his staff. And he goes, whack, whack, water comes out. They still get their fill. But Moses misses out on gaining into the promised land, entry into the promised land. God sees Moses, that's not what I wanted you to do. Yeah, but that's how it worked before. I've just got it all figured out. Here's the formula. It worked last time, so it'll work this time. All I've got to do is follow the manual and I can get water out of the rock. All I've got to do is hit it. You said, no, speak to it, but no, no, no. This is how I did it last time, so this is how I'll do it this time. Whack. Great for the people, expensive for Moses. Because he was living in a posture of life over God at that particular time. He had dipped into a bad picture of God. God is just up there. Hey, look, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. I've done it before. It worked before. I'll do it again. Bad picture of God. Do you know this month? We're right in the end of this month, January. You know that 1,500 pastors have left the church in the United States this month. Next month, another 1,500. March, 1,500. Every month in the United States, we couldn't get the figures from here. Wouldn't be as high because we haven't got a, as big enough population. In the United States, 1,500 ministers leave the clergy, leave the work for the church every month. Do you know why? Because the principles that we've been handed, these laws that we've been trying to govern our congregation, they don't work. And because they don't work, then I'm leaving it because Christianity is a sham, it's a load of rot, and they leave the church because the laws and the principles that they have so meticulously followed have not brought their congregation from here to here. And they leave. They leave God. No, no, no. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. They leave a bad picture of God. Because life under God is a bad picture of God. Uh-oh. Simo. We're not working at all now. Life from God. I still haven't got me um, triangle. But anyway, that's what you get for using Adele, I guess. <coughs> I'm only serious. Is Graham in the house? Mark that down. Life from God. There's another posture. What about this picture of God? What about life from God? Next slide, Simo. Did you know that three and a half thousand... I'll, I'll ditch this, mate. You do it. Did you know that three and a half thousand adverts you see every day? Are you kidding, Murray? Three and a half thousand adverts every single day come to your brain, your senses. That is because we live in a culture now that is governed by what? Consumerism. We live in a culture where I got to have it 
in order to feel happy. In order to gain control, in order to alleviate my fears, I've got to have this, I've got to have that, and now I'm comfortable. Now, oh, hang on a minute, that's been upgraded. I need this and I need that. And we are governed by consumerism, by the need to have stuff. And Christianity has a posture that is very, very similar to life from God. Consumption has now come to define our lives. What is most important in my life is that which is most effective in allowing me to control and feel comfortable with my environment. And God is seen as being useful if he can help me control my environment as I live from God. It's all about me. If you cut the apple, peel it aside, guess what's at the core? You. Because it's all about you. I use God in order to make myself feel comfortable. Neil Postman wrote a book called We're Amusing Ourselves to Death Through Consumerism. You know what the root word amuse actually means in the original language? It means not to think. That's what it means. And Neil Postman, who's written a whole book, and there's many of them, on consumerism and our spending patterns today, says that it's because of consumerism that we try and gain control of the environments in which we live. And a great deal of, next slide, or if you call it a slide, the Bible says this about life from God. Make sure these are the people that have finally got to the promised land. And God says this to them. Make sure you don't forget God, your God, by not keeping His commandments, His rules and regulations, I command you today. Make sure that when you eat and are satisfied, build pleasant houses and settle in. See your herds and flocks flourish and more and more money coming in. Watch your standard of living going up and up. Make sure you don't become so full of yourself and your things that you forget God, your God. You've probably heard the parable of the prodigal son. Two brothers. The younger brother was after the gifts, not after the father. It was after the benefits, but not after the relationship. So he left home with laugh lines around his pockets and a gold tooth display. And the posture, living life from God, can be fatal. Jean Twenge, she's a professor of psychology in San Diego University. She's done a very, very interesting study. She studied the mental health records of 63,000 young people from 1938 through the 207. Don't worry about what's going on up there. 207. And when she did, she, she made the correlation. 
she found a direct correlation between spending patterns and the way that the young people viewed the way in which they lived as far as success and hope for the future and so on and so forth. And she comes up with this. At the end of her study, she says this. Today, that's only half of it. I don't want to miss this. She says this. I found a huge upturn in sociological problems, psychological problems since the 1930s, especially depression. She goes on and says this. I found that today more young people feel isolated, misunderstood and unstable than in previous decades. And she finishes by saying this. Young people today are more likely to be narcissistic, worried, sad, and dissatisfied with life. And she says this. I attribute consumerism as the major player in the rise of mental illness. We have become a culture. This is what's missed out. Listen. We have become a culture that focuses more on material things and less on relationships. And under this posture, we as a people are in danger of focusing more and more on God's blessings and less on Him Himself. And when the blessings don't begin to flow, we say, this stinks. And we leave. We leave God. No, no, no. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. We don't leave God. We leave a bad picture of God. That's why we have so many DVDs and, and, and books and, and, and here's the purpose-driven life and 40 days wild and here's three tips to raise good kids and here's, here's five tips to lose your belt and all this sort of stuff. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And you know what? At the core of it, those that follow this posture, life from God, end up empty and that's why so many leave. We have so much paraphernalia out there and yet we have the highest incidence of young people leaving the church. Why? Because they've adopted a posture, I want something from God. I want His blessings but I necessarily don't want God Himself. And they leave. They leave a picture of God. They leave God? No, no, no. They leave a bad picture of God. Next slide. I don't know what's coming up. Do we go have a next slide? Life for God. Next slide after that. Who um, continues to pray for the same things here and go, oh, stink, I did it again. I better ask again. Ah, oh, stink, I did it again. I better ask again. And you keep praying for the same things, asking for the victory over the same things over and over. Am I the only one? I do it all the time. I, I seem to consistently pray for the same things over and over and over and over and over again. Is that a bad thing? No, but what do you think God thinks of me? <laughs> Mate, I can't get it together, God. You know what? A couple of thousand kids at a Christian university were surveyed. What do you think God thinks of you when you continue to pray for the same things? What do you think God thinks of you? You know what they said? Well, he's a little, little disappointed in me because I keep praying for the same things over and over and over. I can't seem to get right. And they said this, huge, listen to me, listen. They said this, I would be more effective for God if I could just gain the victory 
over the things that I consistently pray for. God is disappointed. God just wishes that I could get my act together so I could do more. And if you cut the apple and look at the core and the posture life for God, you find right at the core is mission. You say, well, that's not a bad thing, is it? Let me share this with you. You know what God thinks of you? Even though you pray for the same things over and over and over and over and over again, he still loves you in your sin. Well, he doesn't love the sin, but he loves the sinner. But a posture living life for God is also a posture that tries to gain control over God. Because if I work for him, then he will bless me because of my efforts. Can you see it's flawed as well? Pastors continually try and motivate and engage their churches to cease looking inside and outside. If, uh, the whole evangelism, that's where we should be at. We should be going out. And those that are celebrated, those that are celebrated as the most effective in the church, and you know this, are those that do the greatest work. Amen? Yes. It's the teachers, it's the pastors, it's the God. Mate, did you know that he devoted a whole year of his life to Cambodia as a volunteer? No pay. Living for God. Man, he's sensational. He's unreal. The core of life for God is mission. But the danger of living a picture of life for God is the whole focus is what I'm doing, is on the mission, is on the program. I run to the program. I run to the meeting. And you know what? While you're running to the program and you're running to the meeting, quite often you miss God because you're so busy. Next slide. Paul has something to say about it. He says this, the very credentials these people are waving around is something special. I'm tearing up and throwing into the trash. And why? I'll tell you why. Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to the high privilege, listen, of knowing Christ. This is the greatest missionary in the early Christian church. This is Paul. He went everywhere. He started all the churches. He preached Jesus Christ. Mate, he was the hot shot. And yet here he is. He's saying, hey, listen, yeah, all that's important. I'm not belittling that. But let me tell you this. My calling does not supersede my treasure. And that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about his calling. He's talking about his treasure. And his treasure is this. It's not the mission. It's God is my treasure. Paul appreciates that every heart with Christ is a missionary and every heart without Christ is a mission field. But he says at the core of it, the most important thing is Christ himself. Yes, all things I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus, my master, firsthand. Everything I once thought and it was going for me is insignificant. I've dumped it all in the trash so I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't I, I didn't want some petty inferior brand of uh, righteousness. And he goes on to say, here he is in prison doing nothing tangibly for the mission of the church. And yet 
He's full of joy. You know why? Because his focus is not on the calling. His focus is on Christ. Next slide. He says this in Ephesians, my response is to get down my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father who passes out all heaven and earth. I ask him to strengthen you by his spirit, not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength. And he goes on and talks about the inner dwelling of Jesus Christ. Next slide. Jesus says this to those that knock on the door and ask for entry into that place that we're all heading towards. And Jesus opens the door. And they say, hey, it's me. I'm the one that did all the work. I'm the one that devoted the, the five years of mission service. I bashed the demons. I did this. I took Bible studies. I even went to church every Saturday, and I did it on Sunday just in case. And Jesus turns around and said, excuse me, I don't even know you. Do you get that? Do you get that? I don't even know you. Gnosko to know intimately, to have a relationship. Not Ideen, two Greek words. Ideen means to know intellectually. Jesus used the word here, gnosko, which means to know intimately, to have a relationship like I know my wife. I know her middle name. Won't tell you what it is, she'll kill me. But I know it. And this whole posture, living a life for God, looks like we've arrived. We've got it right. But at its core... It can be insidiously deadly because you live for the cause and not for God himself. And Paul doesn't dismiss God's mission, but what he does say is this. My mission is not the same as my treasure. What have I got? Luke 15, two brothers. They're essentially the same. Both wanted dad, what he had, but they didn't want a relationship with the father. Both the older son and the younger son. Luke 15, read it. You'll find that the older son is just as bad as the younger son. They don't want a relationship with dad. They just want the benefits. That's life from God. And people that live a life at that, at that core of their religiosity, will become disenfranchised, discouraged, and they'll leave God. No, 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 wait, 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 wait. They leave a bad picture of God. Next slide. Gordon MacDonald wrote a book, The Danger of Missionalism. Missionalism is the belief that one's life is determined by the achievement of the grand objective. It starts slowly and gains foothold. Before long, the mission controls almost everything. Time, relationships, health, spiritual depth, ethics, convictions in advanced stages. Take note of this. Brother Filthy Yates, studying ministry at the college. It can be deadly. Time, relationships, health, spiritual depth, ethics, convictions. Don't buy a GPS to find home. Remember where home is. Remember where the core and the center should be. Jesus Christ. In the advanced stage, he says, missionalism means doing whatever it takes to solve the problem. And in the end, at its worst, family goes, health is sacrificed, God connection is limited. This guy here has correctly identified the problem with life for God. It saps the juice out of us. And our focus is on the mission rather than the man. The guy that invented VeggieTales, I better wrap up. What have we got? Next slide. Phil Vischer. He's the guy that invented VeggieTales, those funny singing 
oranges and apples and tomatoes, whatever they are. I wanted to be the Rockefeller of the Christian world, he said. But after bankruptcy in 2003, I began to look at what God values. The more I dove into Scripture, the more I realized I'd grown up drinking a dangerous cocktail. This is life for God. A mixture of the gospel, church work ethic, and a dream. My eternal value was rooted in what I could accomplish for God. And you know what? When he got so close to it, he realized, this is a bad picture of God. Next slide. Oh, I got me triangle back. Life with God. We finish with this. Next slide. What does this mean? In Luke 15, the two boys. For the father, you know what was important? It wasn't the presence. It was their presence. Get it? <laughs> I wrote that one myself. It wasn't the presence that he could give his boys. It was his presence as the father. Next slide. Mark 4, Mark 5. Oh, that's huge. We haven't got time to unpack it. Mark 4 is where Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat, head in a pillow, and a big storm comes up. Remember that story? You, you guys that know a little bit how to spell the Bible? Yep. Okay, remember that story? You know what? It's not so much what's outside the boat. It's who's inside your boat. It is God with us. It's Emmanuel. Matthew talks about Emmanuel, God with us. This posture here is the posture that we're looking for. Not life under God, not life over God, not life from God, not life for God, but life with God because this is scriptural. And just in Mark chapter 4, when they were in danger of sinking because of the tempest, that, that they could fail to control and they were, they, they were fearful of what was going to happen in their lives, they came through because God was with them. And in Mark 5, we have the demon-possessed man rips down the hill and the disciples see this guy and they, 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 they shoot off back into the boat and they're 50 metres offshore. They peek through the bushes. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the demon-possessed man was sitting at the feet of Jesus, dressed and, listen to it, listen to it, in his right mind. I love that. We're never really in our right mind unless we're fitting, sitting at the feet of Jesus because we need to be with Jesus. Scripture tells us that this is the posture that we're looking for. If we want a true picture of what God is and who He is, we find it here. The gospel, you'll see it in a moment. The gospel is not... What leads us to salvation, the gospel is what leads us to God. Because God wants to be with us. And mission and blessings and whatever it may be that we were hoping, it may come as a result of that. But the core of this is God with us. That's what God wants for us. It started right there in Eden. What's gone wrong here? And they were hiding in the bushes. We're scared of God. And God said, no, 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 okay, we have an issue, but I want to have a relationship with you for the last 6,000 years. God has wanted to have a relationship with a person sitting in your shorts. Sky Jathani wrote an interesting book. It's called With. That's the name of the book. A great deal of effort is expended in faith communities trying to transform younger sons to older sons. Those that want posture from God to living for God. And Jathani says, it's both wrong. 
This is foolish. What matters most to the father is not the young son's disobedience or even the older son's obedience, but having his sons with him. The gospel isn't a way to get people to heaven. The gospel is a way to get people to God. I haven't got time. I think we should finish up. I was going to tell you the story of Henry Nouwen. Google him. Google him. Google his statement of angels over the net. He likens our posture, life with God, as a trapeze team. It's fantastic, but we haven't got time to share that with you. But I want to leave you with a couple of passages of Scripture that illustrate what this whole life with God posture is actually about. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want you. Heard that? Huge passage in Scripture. It says, says, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me to the past of rush. Oh, we put it on a little and we stick it on the wall and we tattoo it and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. There it is. I'm fearful of what, what life will throw at me. But God says this, know this, for I am with you, for you are with me. In John 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd, and I know my sheep. I'm known by the... He's not going to open the door and say, I don't know you. He says, aha, I know you. You know my voice, because you have been with me. And I finish up with this verse. It says this, Isaiah 43, Fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, thou shalt not overflow. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God. Listen to it. I don't know what that word's supposed to be. You are precious in my sight. You have been honored, and I have loved you. Fear not, for I am with you. Posture of life with God. There is one commandment. Only one that appears in every single book of the Bible. Do you know what the commandment is? Go to church on Sabbath? Mm -mm. Be a vegetarian? Mm -mm. Not that. You know what the command is? Fear not. You'll find fear not in every single book of the Bible, even in Esther that doesn't mention God. It appears in every book of the Bible because God says this, Here's the posture that I want you to live by because this will be a true picture of myself. You live with me and as you look at what I have to say of who I am, whether it be scripture or whether it be through community, as you gain a true picture of who I am, you'll know this. Oh yes, I can deliver blessings, but what I'm most interested in is I'm interested in relationship with you. Because all the other postures, when you finally whittle it down and open the apple, you'll find that they're not satisfying and people will eventually turn their back because they leave God because they have a poor picture of who he is. And it's not until we start and develop, listen to me, until we start and develop a life with God that will begin to enjoy the benefits that he has 
for us as individuals. Over the next three or four weeks, we're going to explore the posture, life with God. What's he really look like? What's he really want? And how can I maximize a life with God? Show me the picture. Do I pray? Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you love us. Unconditionally love us. Yes, mission is important and, and, and obedience. And, and Lord, I hope that people don't leave the house this morning thinking, oh, we can throw all that out. No, Lord. All that is part and parcel of living with you, getting to know you, Lord. You desperately want a relationship with us. You pursue us. You are obsessed with us. Lord, as we continue to study, as we continue to come to church here and listen, as we continue to read scripture, as we continue to contemplate the gospel, Lord, may we be moved closer to you because we want to be with you. We want to see that picture of who you really are, that God who's all loving, God who is all gentle, who's all kind, who's all patient, who's all understanding. That's the God you are, Lord. Reveal yourself to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.